Welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishak Arnadjani, a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University. In this episode, I talked with Professor Durba Mitra, Assistant Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality, and Carol K. Forsheimer, Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University. Her research interests include the history of sexuality, the history of science and epistemology, and gender and feminist thought in South Asia and the colonial and post-colonial world. Her new book, out now from Princeton University Press, is titled Indian Sex Life, The Colonial Origins of Modern Social Thought, and explores how the concept of the prostitute and forms of knowledge associated with female sexuality form the basis of intellectual and political practice in the colonial and nationalist context. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to the project in the first place? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate thesis on histories of prostitution, which I think for a lot of undergraduates um, who are interested in studying South Asia, um, that the history of prostitution becomes a way of studying issues of gender and sexuality because there is a rich and diverse historiography on issues of prostitution, not only in South Asia, but across the modern world. And so it was a really good place to begin. And when I was an undergraduate, I was a science student. And I thought that I was studying history for the fun of it, but I was eventually going to go to medical school, just like every other good they see kid. Um, And I increasingly realized that I was much more interested in the social dimensions of science and medicine than I was, and the historical dimensions of it, than I was actually in the practice of it. And so after I finished college, I went to graduate school and I applied with a project that was looking at the history of science in relation to issues of gender and sexuality. And... Uh, after my first year of graduate school, I went to the archives. I knew that I wanted to study colonial India. When I was in undergraduate, I had taken courses that looked um, at the history of India. And my first class when I was in college was a class on Gandhi and Gandhi's intellectual social political thought. And in that class, we talked actually a lot about Gandhi and his conceptions of women and conceptions of sexuality. And so I had been interested in Indian history Um, both as a person of the diaspora, but also as a person who really found in Indian historiography a kind of critical theory, a way of thinking about questions of power and subalternity, about marginalization, um, that answered questions for me more broadly, not only about South Asia, but also just about the world that we lived in. It helped me think about questions of epistemology. So I went to graduate school and in my first time going into the archives, I thought that I was going to be doing kind of a traditional history of prostitution. Most history of gender and sexuality um, came out, you know, as you know, in the 1980s and 90s and was very much located in the field of social history. And so I thought I'd go to the archives, especially the colonial archives, start following categories um, and I realized very soon after that I, first of all, didn't know how to do archival research, but that second of all, um, in the archives, that the archives looked very different than the kind of history that I thought I was writing. Um, and so that's kind of how I came to the project. And it was kind of mulling over the fact that I wasn't finding what I thought I was supposed to find in the archives that made me turn to what eventually became a book about intellectual history and the intellectual history of how sexuality shapes the domain of modern social thought. Mm -hmm. And did you always approach this as an intellectual history? Because you, you know, start your book and your introduction um, calling it explicitly an intellectual history. and, And I just wondered how you came to that positioning. 
So I didn't. In fact, that line, um, I spent a long time on the first line of this book because, you know, I think, as I said, you know, most historiography on gender and sexuality, I think especially when we're talking about Europe and the U.S., is really focused on social history. And then what became called as a field cultural history in the 1990s. And I realized that while social history and cultural history answered certain epistemological questions, that it was in the domain of intellectual history that people were asking questions about the genealogy of concepts and structures of knowledge, fields of knowledge, the rise of disciplines. And there was a kind of gap or there, there seemed to be distance between cultural history and what was happening in terms of intellectual history. But if you look at the historiography of feminist historiography, especially for South Asia, it has always been concerned with epistemology. It just wasn't articulated that way. I, at least for me, that's how I see it. And so I think, and I think just generally in the historiography of modern South Asia, there's a long interest in the question of epistemology and the structure structures of knowledge. So, um, Eventually, I came to call it intellectual history because I wanted to make a claim that that histories of gender and sexuality should be firmly placed within intellectual history and that intellectual history has, at least when we talk about the history of the disciplines and social scientific thought, has long overlooked questions of gender and sexuality. And so I purposely situated the book to begin that way to say I'm marrying fields that seemingly have little to do with one another. Mm-hmm. And, and you argue in the book, your your main claim in the book, is, as I am just about to quote you, is that, quote, the prostitute, when dislocated from the urge to recuperate her as an identity, takes on a different history as a, as a concept foundational to the making of social life as an object of study. Um, and in this quote, basically, I'm, I'm reading, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, basically, if not a rejection, then a complication, I guess, of the recuperative gestures that, like you said, many associate with social history or women's history as it was done maybe a few decades ago. Um, is that a fair reading? And, and if it is, can you say more about what that kind of rejection uh, of, of maybe the more recuperative gestures ha- have, have to do with the argument that you are in fact making? Mm-hmm. Well, I see this project as as I, as you mentioned, as an intellectual history. And I think making the argument of the history of the concept of the prostitute as an intellectual history requires a kind of rethinking of the major historiography that has dominated how we understand the prostitute, um, especially in the, in the modern period, not only in South Asia, but really across the modern world. And in, in the introduction of the book, I say that the prostitute is the paradigmatic figure or the paradigmatic idea for feminist historiography. It's, it's you know, the 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 history par excellence, it becomes, you know, if you look at the historiography from the 1990s, there's a good history of prostitution in many, many parts of the world, um, in London and in Paris and New York. And some of that has to do with the fact that there is a lot of documents there, you know, there's a lot of archiving of prostitution that happens from the middle of the 19th century. What was interesting for me was, um, in that historiography, and I'm going from classics like Judith Walkowitz's about prostitution in Victorian society to more recent books on Shanghai or um, Poland even, um, the prostitute as a historical idea or archival um, category 
uh, was often taken at face value by the historians who were reading um, those archives. So when an, when a woman would be called a prostitute in an archive, uh, you know, the historians would talk about that woman either as a prostitute and or a sex worker, thinking in a more uh, agentive way about how women were historical agents. Um, what that historiography didn't answer for me, and, and this is also in the historiography of South Asia, is why is it that there was a kind of, to use the language of Foucault, an incitement to discourse about prostitution in the middle of the 19th century? And if you look, you know, whether we're talking again about Paris or London or colonial India or the colonial straight settlements, there is, you know, almost an excess of knowledge production about the prostitute. In fact, there is perhaps more sociological studies on the prostitute in the 19th century than any other kind of key subject until the later part of the 19th century. And so what I was interested in was how could we explain that knowledge question? And to, you know, to read an archive in a particular way or to say that the prostitute was just a category that could be translated into an identity form didn't answer the knowledge question for me. And so in some ways, it's not about saying that the prostitute is not a sex worker or that women, in fact, did not engage in prostitution or because, of course, they did. But it is to disaggregate what it means to write the history of women from this concept um, to say what, for example, would it mean to write a history to call these women women and to ask about the multiplicities of the social intellectual forms that shaped their lives. It is also then um, a way of saying that if we put aside the question of sexual commerce or kind of late capitalism and the question of sexuality and late capitalism, it's not to put it aside, but to say that late capitalism is also interested in creating disciplinary forms that organize and describe societies that um, we can ask a set of different questions. So when we're no longer telling the story only about sexual regulation and commerce, that we may be able to ask an, a question about the ubiquity of the idea of the prostitute in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I just wanna ask then specifically about that. You make, I, I get part of part of your argument is to, to shift from looking at the prostitute either as um, a real sex worker or as a sort of imaginative kind of figure or, or container and rather as itself or herself as, as a quote, seemingly timeless concept. Um, what does that mean? What does that mean for, for you and, and for your book? So seemingly timeless, you know, I began the introduction of the book uh, with a short story by Rudyard Kipling, which actually not that many people know about, but it begins that that short story kind of gives us the phrase that we often associate with with prostitution, which is that, you know, that prostitution is the most most ancient or oldest profession. And I'm interested, I've, I've been interested in the way that the prostitute and that women's sex work has been perceived as this since time immemorial, their women have sold their bodies for, you know, for sex and for, for profit. That idea of time immemorial, that women do certain things in, in ahistorical ways was really interesting to me. And it was also very unique and specific. So if you look at my archives, a lot of books would begin with that kind of, that idiomatic phrase of prostitution is the oldest profession. And often historiography, especially from the eighties and nineties also kind of reflects that prostitution is the oldest profession, but here we can historicize it a little bit. And so um, I'm, 
I'm interested in instead, instead of calling prostitute an identity, by calling it a concept, I'm thinking here with Reinhard Kosolek and others, and especially Michel Foucault, and thinking about what it means to write the genealogy of concepts. What does it mean to think of this as an ideological category? What does this mean? What does it mean to think of it as a kind of flexible unit through which theories about society could be imagined, created, debated, um, and regenerated over the course of the 19th and especially the early 20th century. Um, and so by shifting it from being this timeless idea that women inevitably engage in, um, it disaggregates again that kind of recuperative project, or that that's what my hope is, is it disaggregates the project of recuperation to say that we can ask actually a series of other questions to these archives that look very different than the social history of recuperated historical subjects. Not to say that we shouldn't ask the questions about what it means to write about people and women and women marginalized over the course of history, but to, to instead say we're not only talking about sexual commerce. So one of the things that I do in the introduction is I say that when we disaggregate or we think of the history as a concept of, of the prostitute as a concept, we're actually writing a much broader history of a phrase that I use of deviant female sexuality and by shifting from writing a history of the prostitute to a history of deviant female sexuality or the way in which modern social science is interested and in some ways obsessed with and makes foundational ideas about sexuality in its imagination of what progress is, that we can actually write many different kinds of histories of our modern disciplines. Mm-hmm. And, and on precisely that phrase, deviant female sexuality, that, that opened up for me um, kind of a, a couple of methodological questions that I that I had for you, especially because, um, so, so the way that you, you frame that concept in your book is, is you say, quote, um, the phrase deviant female sexuality, quote, accounts for the surplus of ideas and classifications that circulated around the category of the prostitute. And I think that that brings up a really exciting and, and troubling method question for me because, I think when one is trying to write about unstable and contingent things, one needs to find a term to capture that unstable and contingent thing. And that requires a certain analytic fixity in the end, which I think can maybe for, you know, a less than careful reader or for someone maybe new to to intellectual history or new to the history of gender and sexuality, um, look like it's undermining the the very instability that's trying to capture for instance, you know, I could very quickly look at the phrase and say, what do you mean by female sexuality? There's no such thing as one female sexuality. But precisely what you're trying to do is talk about how that thing is unstable by giving it a term. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering then, you know, how did you think through that naming problem and land on that term when precisely your point is that it is a knowledge problem in the first place? I mean, this is the difficulty of writing modern histories of concepts, right? I mean, that um, to say that a concept is fluid or mutable, you know, trying to use language to describe the mutability of the concept um, requires a kind of fixity of language again. And I had a whole bunch of other terms. You know, I think I used transgressive sexuality. I used... um, restraining sexuality in my dissertation and I couldn't come to the right phrase to capture the idea 
that I was trying to get at. Some of this is also that the prostitute is an English term. I mean, although there are, um, but it's a term in the Romance languages, especially. And then it is translated as an English term or transplanted as an English term into the Indian, the colonial Indian context. But I was also working in Bengali, especially, and, and in this case, Sanskrit. And so there were actually so many kinds of terms circulating, circulating around the idea that I needed to have some phrase that, that a reader could hold on to, to walk through the book to say that this is how I'm trying to organize this whole array of concepts. One of the things that I say at the beginning of the introduction is that if you look at the archives in colonial India, the prostitute means basically everything. It's a Hindu polygamous wife. It's a Muslim laborer. It's a woman who works in a jute mill. It's a dancing girl, so-called dancing girl. It is, you know, a courtesan who is in a Muslim courtly society. It, it could mean anything. It's a house wife, it can be especially a house slave. Um, and certainly it, it indicated, it, it was supposed to indicate, or it was often a term used to, to about low caste or outcast women. And so one of the things that I realized is that because the term could be anything in some ways, it could mean any kind of woman, that every kind of woman was potentially a prostitute, I had a problem. And so I had to give some filler phrase. So the phrase that I ended up with, deviant female sexuality, is a really, you know, it's a complicated one. One, because I gender it, female, and, you know, I'm very cognizant of what that means, meaning that at least in the archives that I look at, the people who are in the archives named as prostitute are almost uniformly either called woman or they are gendered female in that I think occasionally hijra communities are considered prostitutes as well, um, but they're feminized by the colonial state. So they're gendered a particular way. And so I'm very particular about using the word female and then deviant um, to get at the way in which deviation or anomaly or um, abnormality becomes an object of social scientific study itself in the 19th century. So I use those phrases very specifically, but one of the things that I've, I've recently been writing a concept history of the term sexuality, and I realized that sexuality is a term, as I've been writing it, is a term that really becomes melded together, sex, sexual, and then ality. The thing, the idea that sexually, sex, there is something that one holds within oneself, one's desire, or that one has sexual preference. That's actually an, a term that's really only comes together in 1780s. And I think that that's not coincidence that, you know, it's exactly in the time of William Jones, who I look at in the first chapter in philo on philology, that it's not unsurprising that it's with the rise of the expansion of the colonial, of the British colonial state, that sexuality as an idea is melded together as a coherent concept. And so even as I'm using these terms, you know, deviant and female and sexuality, I am cognizant of the fact that those terms are actually being constituted in the, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And so, as you said, what does it mean to produce fixity when I'm trying to say there's some mutability to prostitute? You know, some of that is the work that we have to do as intellectual, you know, intellectual historians is to create something that a reader can hold on to. But my hope is that someone else comes along and says, actually, this term is insufficient. And really, to write the concept history, we do this other thing. You know, like, I think of this as a temporary way to write or think about, think in a different way about a set of archives. But the hope would be that once we begin to think about those archives in a different way, there's someone else who's going to say the fixity of that term is incorrect or inappropriate for the following reasons. And here's another way to describe the mutability of this idea. 
Um, but at least it foregrounds for me what it means to think about women's sexuality and female sexuality as intellectual questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense to me, especially because what I was also thinking about was how um, how I think how elegantly you go about, you know, peopling a book that is so explicitly about ideas. You know, for instance, y- your book is organized around kind of the way that knowledge moves, you know, origins, repetition, circularity, evolution, veracity. Those are kind of how your, how your chapters are set up. Um, but your book is hardly missing people you know for instance you open your third chapter with this quite harrowing line you write Gali Beva experienced many social deaths before she actually died in 1885 alone in a dilapidated house where she lay naked bleeding profusely from an alleged abortion and even then in her death of course there's criminality hanging there there's her body hanging there and, and all these things you go on to talk about in the chapter um so I suppose I was wondering as as a writer as a writing problem when you are so explicitly foregrounding the concept here and not necessarily um the, the, some kind of positivist uh reality of a of, of a person um how you went about peopling that story and and when and when you thought to kind of step back and when you thought to go down into the kind of bodily the way that you did for instance with this with this line mm-hmm I mean, I, um, I try to unfold what it means to people, this history for my reader and my encounter with the experience of the archive for each of the readers. And so with Kali Bewa, it was one example. If you read the document, it's a coroner's report. You know, it doesn't read like a woman who's left alone basically decomposing in a room. But I remember being emotionally affected by reading that report in the archive. But one of the things that's striking about that entire chapter is that in those reports about whether it's an autopsy or medical exam of women related to questions of abortion, that the medical examiners or the people who are narrating the report tell you not to have an emotional experience while reading the report. They say this is purely of scientific value um, over and over again in these medical, in these forensic medical textbooks, like, and in the coroner's report. And one of the things that was interesting for me is the disjuncture between my emotional experience of reading an archive compared to what the archive was telling me I was supposed to feel. And I imagine that every reader probably would have the same kind of cognitive dissonance. And so, as you were saying, what does it mean to people? You know, part of it is I try to show that even as I try to people, it's an inadequate project. So in Kali Bewa's, you know, case, her name is Kali. Bewa is the name given to her by the coroner um, because it indicates that she's a widow. It's a kind of colloquial Persian term. And then at the end of the chapter, I come back to this coroner report and say that ultimately there's not much of a story about this woman's life that I can tell. I can tell you about her death and I can tell you about how instead of going through funeral rites and being buried, she is placed atop an autopsy table and performs a pedagogical role for a set of people who have authority. And so that's the story that I'm able to tell. And um, what does it mean to tell that story? What does it mean that those bodies or the descriptions of these people's, of these women's bodies are the only archive that I have? And for me, the limit point of that archive is interesting as a, as a historian. <clears throat> as it, what you're saying with narrative. So I try to people it in every way. I have that again in another chapter, um, 
where I'm talking about legal reforms. And I look at a case, a woman named Sukumani Rar, again, Rar, Rari, um, a woman who's supposedly perceived as a prostitute. Um, but a woman who says, I'm not a prostitute. You know, she was arrested under the Contagious Diseases Act. And there's very few voices of what we would say so-called voices in archives. But when I found them, I was interested in what they did or what they rhetorically would help us understand about a system of knowledge. Um, but the, the people who really people or the kind of actors of my book are largely public intellectuals, um, both colonial officers and Bengali intellectuals who are writing in the early 20th century. Um, when I was writing the book, I, one of the things I noticed is in my dissertation, I wrote a lot in the passive voice. And I basically rewrote the whole, I wrote everything over again because I realized that I hadn't peopled my story enough to make the ideas come alive. And so I've actually become interested now in what it means to tell, it's in some ways intellectual history through the quirky social histories of the intellectuals who make knowledge in, in colonial India and elsewhere um, in the early 20th century. Um, so those are the people who are my actors. And one of the things that I do in the introduction is I say that these men, largely men, are I call them social analysts because to call them social scientist isn't really, doesn't get at the way that the social sciences themselves are being formed in this period. Um, so in some ways, women are perpetually inadequate subjects of my history. I do think that there are historiographies that are really trying to think very seriously about what it means to write at the limit point of these archives. Um, I think South Asian historiography has done this for a long time. I also think that there's really extraordinary black feminist historiography that has been trying to think about what does it mean to sit at the edge of knowing anything about a subject? And also what does it mean to encounter a subject at the moment of violence or death? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think precisely because uh, social analysis, the law and criminality, um, sort of these more canonical texts, both literary and kind of sociological, um, you know, 19th century Indology, and then these, uh, you know, reports, these, these vignettes of these people's lives, because I think you're writing across all of these different genres, um, I, I really was left with the question of how, um, how maybe your kind of initial practices of reading either varied or didn't across these different things. For instance, are you reading all of these things for the same, um, I don't want to say information, that sounds wrong, but for the same thing? Um, or or were you kind of coming together after that and, and, and putting those pieces together? I guess that's a sort of genre and, and reading question I have right. for you because I imagine, um, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable to kind of go into these different genres expecting different things. But as you said, you know, sometimes the the text itself was telling you something else explicitly so i mean right. how did you go about that well one of the things i realized in this book and this is something i again say in the introduction is that i ended up doing much more close reading than i thought i would in archives and that is something i think that one would not traditionally find in what would be considered in you know a traditional histor historical text um but I had to do a lot of close readings because part of what I was trying to demonstrate is that even within a particular document, there were contradictory ways of describing questions of womanhood or what the prostitute was, or that over the course of reading a document, one gets a sense that every woman could, could potentially be a prostitute, or there was an interesting logic that 
tied, you know, anti-Dalit and anti-Muslim sensibilities together um, with the question of female sexuality. So um, I ended up reading the logic of text quite a lot. And again, this, this happened in the rewriting, because when I was writing my dissertation, I really thought that I was going to write a social history of the many kinds of women who became prostitutes in the 19th century. That was a failed project. And so I just had to rewrite everything over again when I was writing the book. And in that moment, I realized that I had to approach how I was reading archives differently. So you were saying, how, you know, how does one read across genres? Well, if you look at a philology, like in the first chapter, I look at Indology and these, these books are like sometimes 500, 600 pages long. And one of the things I note in like Johann Jakob Meyer's book is that there's actually more footnotes in his book than prose. Like it, there's so, so much citational apparatus that it's doing a kind of performative work. One of the things that I did for that kind of book is I stepped away. So like, what would it, what does it mean to look at a page and realize that the footnotes take up three fourths of a page? What does that say about the form of the writing? So it's one of the things that I ended up commenting on. It's the same thing like for the forensic medical texts, it was interesting for me. The, at first, I read it to say, oh, OK, we can learn about a woman who's committed an abortion. And then the next thing you knew, I mean, the second time I read it, I found that the medical examiner or the medical doctor who was giving the report was telling me how to read it. And so I would try to note that in the way I was writing it, that that close reading of the text. Um, each of the chapters, as you say, um, takes on a field of knowledge. So the first chapter is on Indology, the second is on colonial legal sociology, um, on ethnology, and then eventually on like lay sociologies or literature. And I ended up organizing the book that way because originally I was trying to meld everything together and do it by ideas or, you know, like have a chapter on abortion, but it just didn't work to tell the story I was trying to tell about knowledge. And so um, in some ways I isolated or took different forms of knowledge or different forms of text and kept them together in parts where my practice of reading could be the same over the course of the chapter. But um, one of the things that I found is that actually the form of reading had to like overlap quite a lot. And so, for example, my third chapter of the one you mentioned, um, where I start with Kali Bewa and the coroner's report is on forensic medical texts. The last chapter is on literature, but one of these literary texts in Bengali from the 1880s actually tells a story of a woman who is about to be set on fire on the, on the funeral pile, a dead uh, woman, and how a, how a family is mourning her death. And then the colonial state comes, a, a set of colonial officers come, they pull her off of the funeral pyre just before it's set on fire, and they cut open her womb, and um, a fetus falls out. And that story is told in a very different way in the literary text, because this, the text is about polygamy and the problem of polygamy and the fact that women are having all sorts of sex outside of marriage because they get widowed at a very young age. And it uses this cautionary tale of this kind of colonial intervention of forensic medicine, but it's telling it, of course, to tell the everyday life or supposedly everyday life of a, of a village and the problem of female sexual deviance. Um, that's told in a very different way, but it is in some ways the same story about a dead woman on a pyre um, who was medically examined. And so in some ways I was trying to hold those ideas together, um, even though they appear in different chapters, if that makes any sense. Um, what, yeah. 
And one of the things I say at the end of the book is that um, what you realize is that there is a special place that women's bodies play or a special place that women's bodies have in the way we think about the museumization or the kind of recognition of women and their role in everyday society. Um, And yeah, anyway, I I could say this, talk a lot about, uh, about analyzing text because it was a particularly tricky thing to do for this book because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't follow chronological forms very easily. Um, Yeah. So I ended up having to play a lot with how I wrote these chapters um, in order to make it coherent, despite the fact that it wasn't following either a chronology or a very kind of basic narrative driven by particular actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And I think the, if there is a chronology here, um, it is, I think, about the relationship between British colonial, largely male social analysis, social analysts, pardon me, and um, Indian, largely Bengali male social analysts. And and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but there seems to be then part of the stakes of, of, of your story seem to be some of the continuities. And, and this is, of course, as you as you know, well, a, a big sort of theme and through line in South Asian historiography, the relationship between colonial governance, anti-colonial nationalism, and then the post-colonial state. Um, yeah. And so, so could you talk a bit about that through line then? And, and if, if that is a chronology that your book kind of sits astride, um, what some of the stakes are then for, for that line that you're drawing, either on the level of knowledge production, on the knowledge of sort of women's everyday lives, or on the level of kind of the relationship between the state medical practice, um, and, and, and the body say, I mean, that seems like a kind of a big story that spans these two centuries for you. Right. No, that's absolutely right. I think, you know, uh, the kind of argument line of the book is that ideas about demon female sexuality become foundational to modern social thought. And I think that word foundation is kind of the story that I'm telling as a chronological story. Um, you are exactly right. Actually, each of the chapters, I should say, I'm not, there are, there is actually chronology in the book in that each of the chapters actually begins and ends around the same time. So everything starts in the 1840s and ends in the 18, sorry, the 1940s. So it spans the 100 years per discipline. So Indology from about the 1840s on to about the 1930s and 40s. Um, And so I span the period, and exactly as you say, it moves from being colonial administrators, colonial officers, medical doctors, creating the knowledge to Bengali social scientists, Bengali sociologists, and medical doctors um, constituting a bulk of the knowledge by the middle of the 20th century. And... um, one of the things that I was interested in is that, you know, especially when it comes to the study of sexuality, there is, as you know, a rich historiography, a rich scholarship on colonial sexuality. And that, you know, was interested in questions of race, questions of racial difference. Um, people like Ann Stoller and McClintock, key thinkers in the 1990s writing about these questions. I think that there is a kind of way in which we haven't figured out as historians how to write about sexuality Um, beyond how the colonial state perceived sexuality, because the colonial state proliferated a lot of knowledge about it, um, and because it doesn't look the same when it comes to talking about Indian language texts or whatever whatever language text of the people who were colonized. And so I think 
um, the focus has primarily been about interracial or, you know, white perceptions of, of colonized sexuality. And one of the kind of key commitments I had in this book was to say that the progressive anti-colonial politics that become part of the knowledge production in the early 20th century by Indian intellectuals, Bengali intellectuals in this case, was actually largely still invested in the control and erasure of female sexuality. And so that's why I start with the idea of it's a foundation, that in some ways, if the colonial state sets forth a foundation that says that sexuality is the way to perceive the progress of a society, that in fact, these Indian intellectuals that I explore actually take up that project and use that same foundation to make a set of anti-colonial claims, a set of, claim, of claims about Indian progress that both accept some of the terms of that idea and, you know, negate others. So, you know, make claims to their own ability for social progress, but only based on their own capability for patriarchal control, essentially. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the classic story that Partha Chatterjee told about the inner and outer domain, right? That there is a way that the articulation of patriarchy in the so-called inner domain becomes a mode through which anti-colonial politics imagines an autonomous space for itself. What's interesting for me is that, from at least in the case of this book, I really believe that it is female sexuality that becomes the domain through which a claim of sovereignty is made. And so finally, just to pick up on that last point about sovereignty and where it comes from and what kinds of claims surround it, could you speak to what your book might have to tell us about the problem of Indian nationalism as it stands today? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think um, this project is about the ubiquity of ideas of female sexuality and the erasure and the control of female sexuality in how Indian conceptions of social progress are imagined in um, in the colonial period, but it's by no means, I think, unique to the colonial period. There's a lot of continuity. Today, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that, you know, whether we're talking about bar girls or the performance of women in public spaces or questions of rape, questions of intercaste and interreligious marriage, that the the control of female sexuality or the idea that a woman who strays from caste norms, who strays, who, you know, is perceived as deviant, all of those ideas um, are very much shaped by this long history, this long intellectual history that has shaped modern social thought. And some of that has to do with the law and the way that the law is structured very much in this period, very much reflecting the ideas that I talk about in the book um, around questions of monogamy, uh, you know, around a system of marriage that is ideal, that idealizes upper caste marriage and really condemns other social and sexual forms. Um, so in today, I, I would say that, you know, we find this in all kinds of debates. Um, I did an extensive study with a colleague of mine, Rinal Satish, who is a law professor in Delhi, and we studied rape law and we looked at all high court rape cases in India uh, from 1952 until 2011 to look at how ideas about female chastity shaped the outcome of the cases. And one of the things that we found was that perhaps unsurprisingly, ideas about women's hymen or women's virginity were absolutely fundamental to how um, to the outcome of rape cases and to whether a woman was considered honest and truthful in rape cases. And so the conception of female chastity is very much 
critical to how people imagine the working of Indian law today, but I, I think we could see it in all sorts of public discourses. It's there a lot in the Hindu right, which, you know, is very interested in the control of female sexuality and which uses anti-Muslim bias and uh, like profoundly violent anti-Muslim language to make claims about Muslim sexuality and the vulnerability of female sexuality. Um, all of those ideas, I think, are things that you see reflected in over the course of this book, the kind of quiet communalism that's actually deeply embedded in many of the social scientific ideas by supposedly progressive anti-colonial thinkers, the kind of deeply casteist ideas about sexuality and the control of Dalit women or lower caste women's sexuality. You see those ideas all the way through the book, and those ideas in the book are presented as pure social science and objective evolution science. And I think that that idea that those things are objectively true are uh, still pervade very, very contemporary debates about sexuality today. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's something in the story that you're telling that can help us um, think through the kinds of politics that might be uh, genuinely emancipatory rather than um, the kind of not quite emancipatory progressive politics that that you were you were just talking about? Right. Well, I think so in the afterword of the book, one of the things that I say is that um, I juxtapose the this Rukeya Hussein's short story about um, Sultana's dream, which is about, you know, a world lady land where women rule the outside world and men um, have to stay secluded within the home. And I juxtapose that to a story of a kind of deeply conservative um, social science text that I read in another chapter. And one of the things that I say is that we've elevated one type of idea of social science and social theory to the domain of objective truth or objective science and a different story like Sultana Shreem Rokia Hussein to being fantastical or science fiction or fantasy. Um, and Part of what I ask at the end of the book is, what does it mean that we have elevated the domain to social, of social science to a domain that is seen as absolute truth? So to ask, answer your question, what does it mean to imagine another, what a liberatory politics would be? You know, that liberatory politics, in my view, would at least begin to question the domain of what we've understood to be the data of our truths. Um, my next project is looking at the rise of social science around gender and women in the second half of the 20th century. And I think there is a kind of idea of self-evident truth that the state will create liberation, that feminist liberation happens through the state that, of course, many Indian feminists have critically engaged with for decades, that um, we have to ask about what our liberation is. I also think that, you know, movements like contemporary movements like Me Too in South Asia, in, in India and elsewhere, um, have been asking fundamental epistemological questions about what are the processes, what are the means through which we can perceive justice and ideas of equity and gender equity um, and claim sexuality, uh, claiming women's sexuality. You know, I don't think Me Too has a prescriptive mode. And so in some ways what you're saying, like what is a liberatory politics that doesn't look like this? I think, you know, the 21st century has given us a sense that the liberatory politics of the early 21st century do not have very easy prescriptive forms. 
they don't tell us the way that we should ask and ask a question. Rather, they offer a form of critique that we haven't had before. Um, and that's how I would see this kind of project as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm afraid we have to wrap up there. But before we go, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and thank you so much for your book. Thank you so much.